I grew up in Kennesaw, right down the street uh, off of Bell's Ferry. Believe it or not, I uh, rode my bike with friends while they were building Town Center Mall. We would go over there and watch uh, that activity going on. And so Kennesaw, this, uh, this area holds a special place in my heart. It's also great to be here because I have a lot of friends here. And so it's a pleasure to be able to uh, come and exposit the word in the presence of friends. And um, I thank you for this opportunity. Uh, as was mentioned, I'm the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship at Emory University. I've been there for a couple years now. And um, it has been a delight and a privilege to minister there at, uh, at Emory. And we love uh, being in that area and being able to minister the gospel to students. It is indeed a privilege. It is a great opportunity and uh, avenue, really, for this denomination, PCA, uh, to speak into the culture. And so that is a privilege as well. This summer, one of the things we do as RUF is take uh, all of our students, um, really with the RUFs across the nation, to something we call summer conference. And they asked me this year to teach a seminar on the doctrine of adoption. And uh, really what I'm doing this morning is sort of taking that topic and uh, particularly centering it in Ephesians, uh, but looking at this often missed doctrine. What does it mean that we are adopted children of God? Our Father, who art in heaven. Have you ever stopped and thought about why we can even approach God as Father, the creator of the universe? We go to Him and we say, Father... How can we even do that? Or have you ever thought about how our Savior, our Redeemer, the Messiah, comes to us through an adoptive relationship with Joseph in the line of David? Adoption is even there, and yet the doctrine of adoption, or even if we don't use that terminology, the reality of being children of God through adoption is one of the most neglected areas of our theology or of the uh, it's neglected in the sense that we sometimes pass over it in a lot of different ways. For example, uh, when I was in seminary, which I went to with uh, some of the people in this room, but when I was in seminary, we took four uh, classes on systematic theology. We used this giant textbook by this guy named Louis Burkhoff. And as I was preparing uh, for this, I went back and looked, and there's out of seven, over 700 pages, there was half a page dedicated to adoption. And so I thought I'd go back and look at the early church, and even there, it's scant a little bit, but when Augustine comes along, he sort of refocuses everything in a good way uh, on the sovereignty of God. And so you really don't have, even until the Reformation, any sort of distinct thought being put towards adoption, particularly thanks to John Calvin. One scholar says this, No other writer of the Reformation makes such use of the fatherhood of God, or we may add, of adoption, as does Calvin. In fact, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 12, that uh, in 1,500 years of the uh, history of the church gives an, an actual distinct chapter to it. It says this, all those that are justified, God, vouchsafe, uh, God vouchsafes in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, 
are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. This is a really important thing that we are talking about this morning. It has implications that are far and reaching into our personal lives, how we relate to one another, how we relate to our parents, how we relate to the church, how we relate to the culture. And so this morning, I want to look at just three aspects of this idea of adoption, of being adopted by God, and then seven quick implications of this adoption. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn or you can follow along in the bulletin, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. This is God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. Let's pray. Father, guide us uh, right now this morning. I pray that you would suppress anything that would, um, anything in me really that would oppose the clarity of the gospel. Lord, we ask that you would uh, plant it deep into our hearts, that it would bear much fruit. Speak to our hearts and minds in a way that transforms us, transforms us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. May we see him so beautifully this morning. And we pray in his name, amen. So first, adoption and salvation. You cannot understand adoption. You cannot conceive it really without understanding justification, right? That beautiful reality that we are declared righteous on account of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And in that, there are two things that are clearly seen. First is that there's this debt that was created by our sin that is put upon Jesus, and when he goes to the cross, that debt is canceled out. It is imputed to him and therefore taken care of. But secondly, that simultaneously that we receive the righteousness of Christ. Right? So two things happen there. Our sin and debt is placed upon Jesus, but then also we receive his righteousness. It is a beautiful reality. In RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, it's one of our core principles. It's infused in everything that we do with students. We may not use that terminology, but as we do one-on-ones with students, as we preach on Tuesday or Wednesday night on campus, as we do small groups, we are constantly talking about this amazing reality of justification. But listen to J.I. Packer 
on the relationship between justification and adoption. He says this, theologian and, and, uh, and pastor, as, the, um, as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. And he bases that on the idea that justification is principally a legal or forensic reality. It's going, if you will, from a slave to being set free. From having a debt and having sin and then having that wiped away and receiving legally the righteousness of Christ. Whereas adoption is a filial reality. It has something to do with the family. It carries that weight of being part of, um, of God's family. Look again at the language in our text, verses 4 and 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Verse 5, He predestined us for what? For adoption. If you go back to Galatians, Paul says something similar in chapter 4. In verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And that adoption as sons is an important a phrase, if you will, it has nothing to do with male or female. It has everything to do with inheritance. Sons were inheritors. And so when we talk about being children of God, the reason why Paul uses that term adopted as sons of God is he's saying when you become a daughter or a son, you are becoming a full inheritor of the kingdom. An inheritor with Jesus. I think the relationship here. Uh, is seen well in an illustration that Swindoll used that I've sort of taken and changed a good bit. Imagine that you're a father in the backyard and the kitchen is right there, is full of windows. You can see right there. And your eight-year-old uh, son is in the kitchen. And while you're back there, a 16-year-old troubled kid breaks into the house and attacks your eight-year-old son and attacks him to such a savage degree that he ends up killing him right there. You try to get in desperately, but you are not able to until after the damage is done, and you walk in there. And really, there's maybe four options. One is that you could smite him down right there. That would be vengeance. You could call the authorities, and the authorities come out, and they take him to court, and you do everything in your power to make sure he is prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Maybe they'll try him as an adult. Maybe they'll give him the death penalty. That's justice. Maybe you call the authorities and see him in court and say, well, he was a troubled kid. He needs to be held accountable, but maybe go a little light on him. That's mercy. Or maybe you go to court, fourthly, and you go to the judge and you say, this kid is a kid without a father, a kid without love. What he has done is horrendous. The damage he has done to me is inconceivable. Yet let me take him as a son. And you walk out of the criminal court 
and you walk over to the family court and you go to that judge and you say, I want this one. Will you make him my son? Will you make him my child? And you walk out of that with an adopted child now. That is, that is much the situation with God adopting us. We are that person. Those people that killed God's son. But he didn't seek vengeance. He didn't seek justice. He didn't seek just mercy. But he gave grace and he adopted us into his family. That is profound and amazing. And without the death of his son, we wouldn't be brought into his family, much like the young teenager in this story, which is why Charles Wesley, when he wrote the hymn, Where Shall My Wandering Soul Begin, says, Oh, how shall I thy goodness tell, Father, which thou to me hast showed that I, a child of wrath and hell, I should be called a child of God. Because we could stop at justification and say that uh, debt is paid, sin is taken care of, we receive righteousness, and so that we go from a slave to a free man. No. Adoption means that we go from a slave to a son and to a daughter. It is much greater than we uh, sometimes give it credit for. It's a powerful picture and a beautiful reality of how a father brings us into his family, but don't miss the beauty of the Trinity, of the Godhead in all of us. And so secondly, adoption and the Trinity. This passage, Ephesians 1, is one of the most uh, telling and beautiful pictures of the role of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit in all of Scripture. We are adopted and saved through the, uh, by the Father, through the Son. We're sealed by the Spirit. It's thoroughly Trinitarian as we consider this adoption. That adoption comes uh, from the Father, verses 4 through 6. It comes in the Son, verses uh, 4 through 6. And... It is sealed, as we read here, by the Spirit, verses 13 through 14. And don't miss the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. If you have your Bibles, you can look, or I'll just read it quickly. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery and fall back into fear, but you received the Spirit, listen to this, you received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The Spirit's purpose in our adoption is to make us aware that we are children of God, that we are just not, oh, we're forgiven people now, freed people but one of the Spirit's role is to make our conscious aware, our conscious aware that we are children, that we are adopted, that we belong to Him, to make us understand that we're part of a family. The Spirit uh, bears witness with ours so that we can approach God as Father with boldness and trust. It allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. Recently, I was at a playground. I live in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. We were at a playground, and there was this little four-year-old, and he was on this raised platform on this playground. And he was scared to jump off, so he starts crying, Abba, Abba, Abba. And his father comes over, and he sort of jumps off and catches him. And in reality, I, I, I thought, I couldn't help but think about this passage. 
the fact that the Spirit, as He testifies to us about our adoption, allows us to do. In fear sometimes, to cry out, Abba, Abba, Father, catch me, I'm scared, will you be there? It's profound what the Spirit does in us. Russell Moore, in his book Adopted for Life, says this, The Spirit himself, Paul tells the Romans, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This isn't some giddy, emotional experience, a comforting whisper in our consciences that we're of Christ. The Spirit simply points us to Jesus and identifies us with Him. Because we share, um, because we share the Spirit with Jesus, we cry out with Him to the same Father. As Jesus, we cry out to the same Father. The Spirit guides and moves us really more than anything else for us to act our position. A son, a daughter, to live out of our new status as children of God, as sons and daughters. So thirdly, adoption and status. Being a child means something. It comes with responsibilities, yes, but it comes with privilege. Three, quickly, it means that we are part of a family. First John 3 one and two, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children. See what kind of love that we might be called children of God, and so we are. Romans 9, 6 through 8, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Secondly, it means that as Jesus' brothers and sisters, we share in his inheritance, which is what? Look at Hebrews 1-2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. We share in that inheritance all things. It's profound and amazing and much larger it's not just that as we sort of grow up singing about the, the house that we're going to get in heaven, it's so much bigger than that as we are inheritors of all things with Jesus. Which is why in the next chapter it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We share in that inheritance. Thirdly, it means that we have a new nature. 2 Peter 1, 3-4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers. Listen to this. You may become partakers of the divine nature. I think something that will never be analogous between the adoption of um, of us to the Father and adoption as we understand it here in a present context of, um, of somebody uh, adopting a child that does not biologically or is not biologically theirs is this reality. If one of us, and, and you may be ad adopted or um, you may have adopted or you may have friends that have been adopted, one of the things that's never the case is that you don't share in that uh, the biological, which is, I know is not uh, profound in any sense. They are just as much of a child, which is one of the beautiful things about this. But here is God the Father who actually is able to give his nature 
which is beautiful and perfect and divine, and share it with those that he has adopted. That's us. That we share in the divine nature of God. When you were a child, what did it mean to be you? To be a child in your family? What did it mean to be a child of a Stuckert, a child of a Stock, a child of a Schaefer? It meant something to be a McGinnis. For me, it meant something to be the child of the family that I belonged to. It meant that we ate dinner together almost every night. It meant that when my dad traveled during the summers for his job, that we got to go with him. It meant that we had full use of his house and of his land. We got to, to play in it and enjoy it. It meant that we spent Christmas mostly in Miami. Being a child of a McGinnis meant that I had to mow the yard on a regular basis. It meant that I had to uh, clean my room, even though I wasn't very good at that, and most of the stuff ended up sort of underneath the bed, still passed, but it meant that I had to at least try. It meant that we went to church on Sunday and often on Wednesdays and potlucks and all of that. It meant that we were disciplined, that I was disciplined for disobedience. It meant increasing freedom with maturity. It meant that I had to work hard in school and do my homework, and it meant that I got to just sometimes enjoy and play. That's what it meant to be a McGinnis. Maybe that's what it meant for you. Through adoption, we are part of God's family, and that means something. It means we act a certain way, we think a certain way, we speak a certain way, we love a certain way. Ultimately, for us, it means we are more like Jesus. And as you look back and think, what did it mean to be a child in my family? And that's hard, as is often the case. I pray that you will look to the gospel and see that our Father is a perfect Father who does not cast away His children, who pursues His children, who loves His children, who cares for them, intends to them, and gives them the Spirit, the Spirit to make them aware of that. That, if you grew up in a hard family, that is a beautiful thing which I hope gives you um, a sense of joy and peace. There are a lot of implications of this. I wish I had time to, to speak more and more and more about this beautiful reality, but I want to look as we close at seven implications of our adoption. What does it mean? What's the big deal? Okay, I see the link between justification and adoption. What does it mean to be a child of God? First, marvel. <laughs> marvel at God's glorious work in adoption that you can cry out, Abba, Father on account of your adoption. He is not just the, the God who made you free, but He is the God who chose you, who predestined you for the purpose of adoption. That's amazing. If you stopped and thought about that, as you look at this Ephesians passage in Galatians, that we were predestined for something, for adoption, to become part of a family, that you're a brother or sister with Jesus, marvel at that. Marvel that you're a co-heir with Jesus. Marvel that you are a part of a family here. We, we are brothers and sisters. Secondly, find assurance in your adoption. 
Several verses later in Romans 8, um, after he shares about receiving the spirit of adoption, um, he says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together. Uh, for those whom he foreknew, he called according to his purpose. Or for, he foreknew, I'm sorry. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified there is past tense. It is a done deal. We are sealed by the Spirit in the, as we read in the Ephesians passage. There is assurance in that. That God does not cast off His children. Packer says this, that God in love has made Christians His children, and if He is perfect as a father, two things follow. First, the family relationship must be an abiding one, lasting forever. Perfect parents do not cast off their children. Christians may act the prodigal God will not cease to act the prodigal's father. And then secondly, that God will go out of his way to make his children feel, feel his love for them and know their privilege and security. Thirdly, connect adoption to the sacraments. Baptism is a sign of initiation in our adoption as we are brought into the family of God. When Jesus in Matthew 3 is baptized, there's that voice from heaven that says, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. That is our reality as we look to our adoption. God saying, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. It is because we are adopted that we can claim that. The Lord's Supper is a family meal of fellowship. Which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, when you come together... Wait and eat together. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are brought to us as a family reality. And again, baptism as that initiation. It's a beautiful thing. When God says what He says in baptism, we realize that principally baptism is not about us declaring that we belong to God Right? But it's God declaring principally that we belong to Him. That He has adopted us. Fourthly, seek obedience and mission as a child. We share as brothers and sisters in Jesus' mission. As the Father sent His only begotten Son, so He sends His adopted sons and daughters for His kingdom. For a time I would look at John 12 when Jesus talks that He came to do the will of His Father. So we are to do the will of our Father which is why Jesus' commission in Matthew 28 to go into the world is our mission. And seek obedience? Justification, being declared righteous on account of the work of Christ, frees us from having to keep the law in order to uh, earn favor with God, to earn righteousness, to earn eternal life. But adoption is freedom to love the law in a way that pleases our new Father. It shows us how to love our Father and obey Him. Fifthly, model God in seeking the welfare of orphans and the unborn. God cares deeply 
deeply about orphans. Listen to this warning he gives in Exodus 22. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God cares about the orphans. In James 1, 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In Asia, there are 3.4 million double orphans, meaning that children without either parent. 400,000 orphans in Latin America overwhelm the social services. 10.3 million orphans fend for themselves in sub-Saharan Africa. There are more than 400,000 children in our foster care system here in the U.S. Let's start thinking, at least thinking about how we are engaging with this reality. Let's be creative again. How our churches can minister to them. Maybe you are being called uh, to give time or money or to adopt. And sixthly, championing adoption in our homes and churches. Maybe it just means to have a small group for women who have given up children to adoption. Maybe it's small groups for families that have adopted um, and, and, and work with that. Maybe it's sponsoring crisis pregnancy centers. Maybe it's starting a fund so that families who want to adopt can adopt in your church. I don't know what it looks like. Let's just start thinking about it and championing it. Russell Moore says this, why is an adoption uh, an emphasis as a great commission priority for more of our churches? Adoption is, after all, evangelistic to the core. When a Christian family adopts a child, that family is committing to years of gospel proclamation, of seeking to see this child come to faith in Christ. And seventh, and lastly, live out of your new identity as an adopted son or daughter. This is one of the most difficult things. It's that reality of Romans 7 that we sometimes struggle with that reality that, well, maybe I'm not really loved and adopted by the Father. Maybe I don't really have this new nature. And then sometimes you're like, no, I do. And, uh, and you find joy, and there's that constant struggle going on. My best friend um, in college came over late as a seven, uh, seven or eight-year-old from Korea. And I think as, as I talked to him, he really wrestled with this identity issue. And it made him struggle in deep and profound ways as he had to remind himself that, no, I am now a child of this family. I am no longer abandoned, an orphan as he was in South Korea. That he belonged to something and that meant something to be now part of this, this family. But it was hard, and I think we struggle sometimes with our new nature and as you consider this reality that your children think about it, that you uh, now have the righteousness of God in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that you have been made one uh, or one with Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28, that you are no longer a slave but a child, Galatians 4.7, that you've been set free, Galatians 5.1, that you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3, that you're chosen, holy, and blameless, Ephesians 1 that you've been sealed with the spirit of promise, Romans 8, 
That because of God's mercy, you've been made alive with Christ, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. That you're seated in the heavenly places with Christ, Ephesians 2, 6. That you're God's workmanship, created to produce good works, and on and on and on as I could go through Scripture. That is the new reality, your new nature, your new status. And as you think about adoption, live out of that. Live boldly. Go to God as Father. Realize that you are loved for and cared for and tended to and cried over. And that when God looks at you, that he says, I love you. I champion you. I relish that you're my child. I celebrate the reality that we were able to walk out of the criminal court once you've been freed and walk into that family court and that I was able to walk out of that with you as my child. A child of sin and wrath to a child of God. As Charles Wesley wrote, let's pray.